It's good to have Chase Edgar with us today. He's filling in. Uh, we are without Hannah and Beth, so Chase is here from Ascension uh, Anglican in Anderson, and they are a church plant. Chase uh, graduated from Beeson with our own, um, with our own Smith Taylor, who uh, is our youth coordinator, so he knows her well. She knows him, and uh, he's just batting clean up for us today, so I appreciate you coming to do that, and I'm preaching at his church tonight, not because it was sort of a transaction, like if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. I was already scheduled to go and preach there. They meet in the evening at a Lutheran church, so, but it's been a year, Ascension, they will celebrate really the, the, uh, the first year. It's been a fruitful year, so pray for Ascension, all right? I'm sure they're in our cycle of prayer. We'll be praying for them some, but um, throughout the year, but be praying for them. It's a very pivotal time for them, but Chase, thanks for serving with us today. Sorry about the microphone, man. But you got that voice that booms a little bit, and it, it works in this room. It's the beauty of this room. Well, how many of you uh, watched the coronation of King Charles III? Man, I saw hands go up quick. You don't have to watch that stuff to be an Anglican. You know that, right? It really does not matter at all. Like, really, really does not matter. Uh, I watched a few clips. I read an article. Um, the author was conflicted, though, right? She was moved by the pageantry and the sincerity, but she was kind of low-key annoyed by the fact that it was, it was this ancient religious service. Uh, apparently, a service she mentioned that dates back to the 6th century, which, you know, Charles probably felt like he's been waiting for the throne since around that time. Uh, and when they said, long live the queen, it really worked. For her, right? It really, it really worked. Um, as expected, that ancient coronation service included a lot of promises, didn't it? Uh, pledges of fealty, they say, mostly theatrical, I guess, or symbolic, since you know, given the state of the monarchy in England. But I still found it moving. I don't know. Maybe you did. Promises are always powerful. They're always powerful, aren't they? And these were very public, whether they're made in front of millions or just the one to whom the promise is being made. They're powerful. It's why we, they can be really polarizing, too. Our lives are conditioned by the promises that we make and uh, the ones that are made to us, whether or not they've been kept. They're powerful. They can strengthen a relationship or they can weaken it. To some of us, uh, words of promise still mean the world. We love to hear them. To others, they mean little or nothing because we've heard too many. Now, if you've... Um, Read the 13 chapters preceding our gospel today, uh, it should come as no surprise that Jesus is taking up the mantle of Israel's Lord by making promises. Like Yahweh, Jesus is promising future blessings for those who belong to him, those who trust in him, for his people, for his followers. And the whole atmosphere in that room that night uh, and into which Jesus makes these enormous promises is important. The atmosphere here is important for us as we rightly appropriate these promises as disciples and as we should. It's an emotional night. So we just set the background here, what's going on in John 14. It's a problematic night. It's an atmosphere of tension. It's an atmosphere of anxiety and fear, and we see it in questions and even some confusion. Jesus is doing and saying a lot of things that are hard to grasp and will only make more sense later. They're hard to grasp now, but they have questions now, 
And everything he's saying seems to give birth to more questions, doesn't it? As Jesus is detailing this blessed future that awaits in verses 1 through 3, Thomas sees a problem here. Or it's probably more accurate to say he feels a problem. Then three verses later, it's Philip's turn. The questions keep coming. And before Thomas and Philip in that same room, it's Peter. And after Thomas and Philip, Judas, not Iscariot, uh, raises some questions in verse 22. This is the atmosphere. All in that same room, a room of promises and their attendant problems. The problems of understanding, the problems of reconciling them with what's going on in the moment. Well, what is going on? Back in chapter 13, Jesus has shared the last Passover with them before washing their feet, which is an enigmatic, right? It's a powerful expression of humility and servanthood. He's setting an example for them, we know. This is what leadership looks like. It's servanthood, which as I understand it, is taking ultimate responsibility for the hard and dirty stuff for the benefit of others. This is what Jesus is doing, but it's controversial that he is the one doing it. It's beautiful, but it's disruptive. It's hard to take. He's lovingly offending their minds to reveal their hearts. He's challenging their sensibilities so that he can change their sensibilities. And then immediately after that, he tells them one of them is going to betray him. But they still can't quite sort it out if you read it. Even though John's account makes it clear to us, we have the, you know, the uh, clarity of hindsight here and of his uh, account. Um, because you know, the way Jesus dips the bread and he hands it to Judas and then sends him out saying, what, are you, what you're about to do, do quickly. And we know all of what's going on, but verse 28 of chapter 13 says, No one knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So this moment is foreboding and it's confusing, really. And finally, a few verses later, Jesus tells him this. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jewish leaders, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Peter raises the first objection, question. He's really the first one to raise a problem, saying, well, where are you going? To which Jesus replies, you can't come with me now, but you will come later. To which Peter replies, why can't we come now? I will lay down my life for you. No, you won't. Just wait and see. You're going to deny me three times. It's heavy. Clearly, Jesus can feel what they're feeling. The waters are troubled, and this is why he wants to encourage them, saying, don't let your hearts be stirred up, be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he promises, I'm going to make a place for you where I'm going, eventually. But... They don't ex exactly exhale their anxieties, right, and inhale this encouragement, do they? It'd be nice if they did. It'd be nice if we did. When we hear the promises in the midst of the problems, Jesus has just said someone is going to betray him. He said uh, that he's going to leave them for all for a while and that even passionate Peter is going to deny him three times. Believe in God, he says. Believe also in me. He's not asking them as Jews to do anything they don't already know is necessary 
in life. Believe in God. What's necessary in the midst of the mundane or even when facing threats. For anything to make any livable sense, they're going to have to keep looking beyond what their present circumstances seem to be saying, how they're feeling, to the promises beyond the problems, trusting beyond their own finite grasp, trusting the character beneath the words of the promise. And this is what Jesus is saying. Believe in God, believe also in me, in his character. Because you know me, and we'll get to that. And for the Jews, this is nothing short of what it means to be human. There's a real honesty about their finitude. It's biblical anthropology, if you will. So it's what we as Christians believe and work in and from. By the very nature of being human, we are appropriately vulnerable. We're not ultimately in control. And that's why our faith begins in the kind of humility it does, and it proceeds in the kind of humility that it requires. We're not in control. It's biblical anthropology, not really. So believe in me, Jesus says, and then he makes the promise, invoking what is a very familiar and also a familial image for them. So here's the image, like a groom who goes to his father to ask for some rooms dedicated to be, to be set apart or, or maybe to build on his land as a home for him and for his new bride. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's, he's saying he's doing the same. He's going to go to his father to ask for the same thing for his disciples. This was the insula system, the way it worked, in particular if you didn't have a massive estate. So then after the wedding, as it were, he'll return to bring them to this new family home. He's going to return. This is the promise. And as this heartwarming promise is rounded out, Jesus then says something in verse 4 that stirs up Thomas's mind and troubles his heart. I mean, it sounds amazing, right? It's a beautiful image. I'm going to take you there, and you know the way to where I'm going. To which Thomas replies, Lord, no, we don't. We don't know where you're even uh, going, where you're saying this is, so how do we know how to get there? Are you putting this back on us? So the anxiety sort of redoubles as Jesus is talking. Everything he said just, it sounds compelling to be sure, but it doesn't really comfort. It doesn't comfort Thomas so much as raise more questions. And they're practical questions. And I, I don't know if you feel it, but I feel Thomas's low-key panic here. Are we responsible to, get, to find the way there? Is he putting this on us to know the way? If so, we're in trouble because we don't know the way. We don't know where he's going. How can we know? How can we get there? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to get you there. This is where he's taking this. He's saying in verses 6 and 7, I'm going to get you there. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's important. That inclusive exclusivity is important. If you had known me, he says, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, which we know trips up Philip. But first, we need to talk about verse 6 because it trips a lot of us up. No one comes to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Suffice it to say, Jesus is not about to have them, listen, hanging their hopes and their whole lives on the promise of an optional Messiah. I am the way, 
No one comes to the Father except through me. It's that serious and that deep and singular. Of course, our modern sensibilities don't exactly want to hear such an exclusive claim. We really waffled on this in the last couple of centuries in the church in particular. But that's what it is. It's an exclusive claim. It's not exclusionary, but it is exclusive. In the days and years to come, these followers of Jesus are going to end up refusing to include Jesus in the Roman pantheon. And they're going to die for it. They're going to proclaim Jesus as not only the, the promised Messiah of God, but also the Son of God in the flesh. And they're going to die for it. They're going to give their lives to make this exclusive claim as inclusively life-giving as it was meant to be. Inviting everyone who will believe, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female, barbarians, Scythians, all of them, to find the way to eternal life through Jesus alone. And honestly, this doesn't mean uh, that we can't be hopeful universalists in some sense, hoping that one day beyond time and on the other side of God's righteous judgment, which is promised that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think John Calvin said it best. He said, for although God's power is not bound to outward means, to the means of grace and word and sacrament, he has nonetheless bound us to this ordinary manner of teaching. This is our belief and our message. He says, God may do what God likes, we must do what God commands. We must say what God says. And there you have it. I can't resist C.S. Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia on this point. In chapter 2, how many of you read The Silver Chair? Jill Pohl, she's entered a strange and magical country after climbing a very high mountain. And in her wandering, she is frantic with thirst. Have you ever just been stupid thirsty, like just crazy thirsty? Relentlessly searching for water, and she then encounters a lion, Aslan, who's lying between her and a deliciously babbling stream. She's as thirsty as she is terrified in this moment. And he asks her if she's thirsty, and she says she's dying of thirst. And then drink, he tells her. Just then drink. She's too afraid. She asks if he would just leave while she drinks or just promise not to do anything to her if she does. The lion says he can make no promises while Jill realizes that she, in her consuming thirst, she's actually started to move closer to him into the water. She asks the lion if he ever eats girls. To which he replies, matter-of-factly, I've swallowed up girls and boys and women and men and kings and emperors and cities and realms. And it's clear who this lion is meant to represent. Jill says she dare not come and drink then, but you will die of thirst, the lion tells her. Coming a step nearer, she says, I suppose I will go and look for another stream then. The lion replies, there is no other stream. This is where you must drink. So the question is, what confidence can, can Jesus' disciples have in these promises? I mean, that's what it comes to, that He alone is the way to the Father. Nothing less than the confidence that comes from knowing the one true God. Their heavenly Father is revealed to them right there in Jesus alone. We can have no more confidence in Jesus or assurance in our faith than they did if we begin to believe that Jesus is a way and not the way. My truth or your truth and not the truth. 
One option for life to the full and not the very giver and sustainer of all life and the source of abundant life, even in the midst of a broken world. That's where our confidence lies. In the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus doubles down in verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have, seen, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There's a problem for Philip. Lord, okay, so show us the Father and that will be enough for us. We need a little more than this. I am the way and the truth and the life. We need a little more. And so clearly Jesus is feeling some things too. And I think we need to read this humanity in here. It's not too much to say that Jesus is a little exasperated, I think. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Maybe he's just heartbroken. Because he's in relationship with this dude. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus really wants them to see that he is one with the Father because of what it's been like to be with him. And he'll get to the works that they've seen. But he wants them to see that he, he is one with the Father because of what it's been like to be with him, to know him as a person with whom they have a relationship and in whom they can trust for healing and for rescue and for blessing. This very, very humanly expressed but divinely inspired exasperation that comes from Jesus, uh, it comes from his desire for Philip and all his disciples to find assurance in trust. In that, in their nearness to him. Why can't Philip understand the beauty of this? Why can't he internalize this assurance? Why can't we? It's the question. We know why. We feel why. The difficulty with settling into such wonderful promises, a home with God, a knowledge of God through Jesus, is that the promises come in the context of the problems. They do, of pain, of uncertainty, of fear and doubt. The answers aren't as neat and tidy as they wish and as we wish. That's the nature of it. Maybe Philip had an inkling of Jesus' divinity. But in moments like this one, it would sure be nice if Jesus could just give them more. A little more. Do you feel it? It's understandable, even if it's not justifiable to want this. Right? In moments of anxiety, scarcity takes over. Well, it's not enough. A little bit more. If only Jesus would dig a little deeper into his divinity and give them a theophany. Pull back the curtain between heaven and earth. But that's exactly what Jesus has been doing. And it pains him that they haven't seen it. Because he is the curtain being pulled back. The works he has done are showing them the Father. Not merely what the Father does, but who the Father is and why he does it. For love. Sacrificially. He's self-giving. Have they not seen it? And if they can't see the Father when they look at him, then at the very least, let the words speak for themselves. Or the works speak for themselves, Jesus says in verse 11. Hold on to that much, Philip. You saw that stuff happen. Remember. Remember. But what he really wants is for them to believe, to believe in him, to believe that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. If they can do that, then there's something else. There's another promise, and it comes in verse 12. They're gonna, they're, they'll, they'll have more confidence if they believe and they can trust. 
And in that belief and that confidence, they're going to keep doing what he's been doing after he leaves. Jesus calls them greater works, and it's probably more of a quantitative thing than a qualitative thing. Why? Because they're going to see thousands come to put their faith in Jesus. In a day. This is a staggering promise that Jesus makes. But they're going to have to trust. Believe in God and believe also in him. And there's a third promise that follows that. It's not in our reading today, but I think it probably should be. That's where I want to wrap this up. Jesus says in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. A helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. In other words, it has other terms for accepting him. It says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's a huge relief. Why? Jesus is promising that the possibility for this ongoing faith and the works it produces amid all the uncertainty, all the problems, the hardship, it's not going to hinge on their capabilities or their recall. Because in the end, this is where the fear has its root, isn't it? If it's up to me, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to believe and trust the scarcity of their own weakness, their ignorance, and their limitation means more questions and more problems. And we're, it's, a, it's in many ways, I think it's us projecting upon God what we know to be true about ourselves. Will they be enough or have enough when Jesus leaves them? No, they won't. But they don't need to. Not on their own. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So to be sure, the promises and the problems, friends, they are going to coexist until Jesus returns. This is normal Christianity. Your questions are normal. There are so many problems we face for which an explanation will not suffice, though. So many questions for which a sufficient answer cannot be found. The last verse of our reading today, verse 13, is important. It isn't a blank check, blank prayer check. It's not transactional. Act, uh, transactional. It's, it's an invitation. It's another way of inviting them into the active relationship Jesus has with the Father. It's what the Spirit is going to do in them and through them in prayer. It's one more promise that Jesus is giving them everything they'll need to go on. They can commune with the Father. Everything they need to keep turning to the promises when the problems try to overwhelm. When the promises try to dilute their hope. So let me just finish with this. Jesus is going to make one more promise. The final promise he makes in verse 27 before they leave that anxious room. And it gets to the root of their questions and ours. The root of the human condition, really. You know, it sort of touched on it. The root of the human condition, you know, of our, of our uncomfortable contingency. When the answers aren't clear on our terms, and they leave us anxious and wanting, he says this in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What does that mean? Conditional peace 
based on what we can fully understand, explain. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not fickle. Not when we actually follow the way everybody else believes, when we step in line and we go with the flow and we sort of kind of find our peace just in co- coexisting. But he's going to give a greater peace. This is the peace that we have in the middle of the problems because we are never going to cease to be people of the promises. The promises are hard, but this is who we are. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. There it is again. Neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that it is hard very often to have peace when we look at the troubled waters and our hearts are troubled by it in this world. We thank you that you've promised us peace. And I would think most of us who have put our trust in you know what it is to feel that even in the middle of the times when, when it, we should not have that peace but you've given it. And Lord, we confess that we want it all the time and we don't ever want the trouble. But we pray, God, that um, the promises that you make would become more dear to us in this life, that we wouldn't cling to the things of this world and of this life too much because they cannot fulfill us. They cannot fulfill history. They cannot fulfill hope. And so, Lord, help us to keep hoping in the promises that you give. Give us peace, Lord, and help us by your spirit in the middle of our problems, because they are many, but you are enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.